the old pilot's plain tales. RAF Form 414, Volume 18 It's May 1987 and I'm on the Australian FA-18 Number 2 Operational Conversion Unit at RAAF Williamtown, starting the final phase on course 1 of 87, before moving on to number 77 Squadron, which was to be my home for the next few years. The art of air-to-ground attack is to throw things at the earth and not miss. Newton wasn't a bomber pilot, but amazingly, he'd already worked out that any particle of matter in the universe attracts any other, with a force varying directly to the product of the masses and inversely to the square of the distance between them. As far as a bomber pilot is concerned, this means that it would be very unlikely that, when you drop something, you would miss clobbering Mother Earth, somewhere at least. This is why, of course, the air-to-ground phase only consisted of 16 trips. After all, how hard could it be? The answer was, in something as sophisticated as the FA-18, not very. However, for my first attempt, I had to prove that I understood the basic physics of bomb dropping by trying to hit the target in a reversionary mode that is, without the ballistic computers helping. A bit like Luke Skywalker bullseyeing womp rats in Beggar's Canyon with his T-16 back home. He, apparently, had boasted of a missed distance of less than two metres. So, with Bob Ambler in the back seat insisting that I use the force and switch off my targeting computer, I pickled off my one and only completely manual bomb. The theory was good. At the correct dive angle, with an accurate speed, the appropriate wind allowance and a steady hand, if the bomb was released at the perfect height above the target, the ballistics should carry it in a perfect arc down to hit it. However, for every knot, every degree, every foot of error, the bomb would follow a different path, in my case, to somewhere so painfully short of the target that the bombing range's triangulating equipment was unable to locate it. Unplottable at six o'clock came the score from the range safety officer. That never seemed to happen to Skywalker. Luckily for me, I was allowed to turn everything back on for the remainder of my time in the Hornet, so never had to admit that the profusion of womp rats that plagued Tatooine was partially down to my ineptitude. We were going around and round in circles over the local air-to-ground range called Saltash that was adjacent to the base less than four miles away. The weapons we were dropping were little practice bombs, called, if my memory serves, BDU-33s. They only weighed 25 pounds, about 11 kgs, but would more or less follow the same trajectory as their larger cousins, the live munitions, such as the Mark 82 500-pound and Mark 84 2000-pound weapons in the Australian inventory of the time. 
In the nose cone of the little practice bomb was a spotting charge that showed as a bright flash and a white cloud of smoke when they hit terra firma. In the Hornet, there were generally three ways of aiming bombs, not including the force. The first was to use the continually computed impact point, displayed in the head-up display by a line dangling down from the flight path vector with a cross at the bottom. As the name suggests, the cross continually indicates where your bomb will land if you release it at that very moment. The technique was to try and guide the target into your HUD with it tracking down the line. The moment the cross intersected with the target, you pressed the pickle button and then shouted, Duck, you sucker! A second was another visual technique which relied on designating the target. This could be done numerous ways, but on the range, we did it visually through the HUD. On pressing one of the multitude of buttons on the throttle, a diamond would appear, ground stabilised and with a line stretching up. A little ackling of the button, left, right, up and down, refined the position of the diamond onto the centre of the thermal exhaust port, I mean the target. All that was then required was to fly the aircraft's flight path onto and up the bomb full line. When it intersected with the small cross line, the release cue, so long as you were holding down the commit switch, the bomb would automatically release. Another technique was to lob the bomb over several miles, which we practiced against targets we didn't want to get close to, and that could be tracked by radar, such as ships. Locking the radar to the target produced a display similar to a visually designated target. Once in range, with the release queue visible, a firm pull-up the bomb fall line brought the flight path vector up to the release point, whereupon the bomb would become a fledgling bird and fly the nest on a short and doomed attempt to stay airborne. At the time I flew, we were only given slick bombs to drop, which leads me to a very non-PC Jaguar pilot joke. What's the difference between a Jaguar pilot, there you can actually insert any bomber of your choice, and a Mark 82 bomb? Not all Mark 82s are retarded. Another might be, what's the difference between a Harrier pilot and a Hedgehog? Again, nominate your aircraft, or indeed your spiny creature of choice. A Hedgehog, Echidna, Porcupine, Sea Urchin, etc. has its pricks on the outside. Getting back to the subject, dropping a slick bomb, particularly from low level, always presented the danger of it exploding beneath you and destroying your aircraft as well as the target. Retard bombs use a high-drag device known as a balut attached to the rear of the bomb which deploys after release to slow it down, allowing the aircraft to escape the fragmentation zone. Now you know about as much regarding bomb dropping as I did at the time. Luckily, the sophistication of the Hornet's weapon system took care of my ignorance and turned this particular art of war into something akin to a computer game, something we were all quite good at. As a result, it became commonplace to hear the range safety officer declare scores like two o'clock at ten feet, 
Five o'clock at twenty feet. D.H. Direct hit. D.H. D.H. With our academic skills adequately honed, it was time to bolt on some live ordnance and head north to the Royal Australian Air Force Base, Townsville, for a short detachment. Townsville was, and I'm sure remains, a picturesque city in Queensland, on the coast in between Brisbane and Cairns. Already populated by Aboriginal people, it was settled, sometimes violently, by various groups of colonialists in the 1860s, and it became a productive area of sugarcane plantations. In the 30s, an airfield was established there, which became a military base during World War II. Townsville was in the tropics, the winter months of which were dominated by the southeast trade winds, bringing fine weather, blue skies, warm days, and balmy nights. The flying was exciting as we worked up with formations of low level overland missions, which culminated in a live bomb drop on Cordelia Island, just off the coast. These missions were often opposed by a bounce aircraft that would attack the formation several times as we ran around the route. We spent a lot of time looking for the bounce with radar and visually in case it swung our wing line and was approaching from the rear. It was during these exercises that I began to truly appreciate the sophistication and capability of the Hornet as a multi-role aircraft. Armed with air-to-ground weapons, it could also carry a pair of wingtip-mounted AIM-9 Mike heat-seeking sidewinders and a pair of belly-mounted AIM-7 Mike Sparrow radar-guided missiles to defend itself. Having gone through the air-to-air phase, we were well-practiced in engaging other aircraft and facing our formations of two or four Hornets the bounce was usually neutralised before it became a threat. Indeed, the flexibility of the Hornet's fighting modes came clear during one particular engagement. Our bomb-dropping profiles were often pop attacks, in that we would fly to a point adjacent to the target at low level and then pop up to a predetermined altitude whilst visually acquiring the target. Overbank, and then pull the target down into the head-up display at the correct dive angle, aim, release the weapon, recover, and then dive back down to low level on a safe egress heading. During one of these attacks, on pitching up, the bounce was spotted loitering over the target, hoping to engage us during the egress. The sharp-eyed pilot rolled his thumb forward on the stick, switching to the Hornet's air-to-air mode, locked a sidewinder to the enemy fighter and fired. He then rolled his thumb back to re-engage the air-to-ground mode, reacquire the target, check his attack parameters, and then pitch down into a successful bombing run. Smooth beyond belief. The missions, including a night radar attack, kept us busy, but we had enough time off to enjoy some of the delights of this small, tropical, coastal town just off the Great Barrier Reef and everything it could offer. One of those involved a strange form of local golf, played in an attempt to reduce the area of a plague of cane toads. 
These noxious pests were deliberately introduced to Australia from Hawaii in an attempt to control the voracious cane beetle that was damaging crops. Sadly, in Australia there were no natural predators facing the cane toad, but plenty of food, most of which didn't actually include the cane beetle, which lives high up on the sugarcane stalks and out of reach. From an initial 102, over the years, the cane toad population exploded to an estimated 200 million, wreaking havoc on the ecosystem and causing the extinction of multiple species. From eggs to adults, the cane toads are toxic, having glands on their backs which hold a bufotoxin. One lick or bite can kill native animals that might otherwise have kept the numbers down. As a result, there is considerable encouragement to humanely dispatch them wherever they're found. Stunning followed by decapitation is recommended, hence the unusual form of golf played on the lawn outside the mess. Other, more conventional forms of entertainment included white water rafting down the Tully River. With an average annual rainfall of four and a quarter metres, that's 14 feet, the river has an impressive level of flow, which makes rafting through the rapids truly exhilarating. We partook, and all had gone well until our happy band of fighter pilots had been split up to help a group of Japanese ladies paddle along. I took a seat amongst the lovely ladies and then watched with horror as the remainder of our group in their raft took a wrong turn and ran over a waterfall. They were all spilled out of the inverted inflatable and once underwater were caught in a powerful underwater rotating current, a standing wave that pulled them deep into blackness and spun them around like flotsam and jetsam. Once seized, despite their life jackets and desperate attempts to swim clear, they were held underwater for a frightening length of time. One by one they eventually bobbed to the surface and we pulled them into our boats. The looks on their white faces was enough to assure us that the fun had gone out of that day. More to my liking was a day out in a luxury catamaran to swim over the Great Barrier Reef and gaze at the multitude of amazing creatures that lived there. That was stunning, but then a few of us got the chance to do it courtesy of the range safety officer and his team in the range launch. After an hour's high-speed cruising out to the target area, he left us on Rattlesnake Island, about five miles, seven and a half kilometres from the aiming point, the small and sharply protruding Cordelia Island. We lazed on a beach and watched some of our course attack it with 500-pound live bombs. Even at that distance, the noise and shockwaves of those small bombs was mightily impressive. We got a few fly-pass from the OC instructors as well, which was brilliant. And then on the final pass of the day, somebody hit the water just short of the target instead of the rock. 
We were already back on the RSO's boat and we watched the impressive water spout before having boat hooks thrust into our hands. Not wishing to waste the bounty of the sea, we set to, collecting the unfortunate fish that had succumbed to the trinitrotoluene and had floated to the surface. The course had taken a mere five months and concluded with my flight back to Willie, as RAAF Williamtown was affectionately known. I received a certificate of completion to mark the end of the course, and had so far logged 53 hours and 45 minutes of fun in the sun. A few days later, we got dressed up in our best bib and tucker, and with our ladies on our arms, attended the formal meal that marked our graduation as Australia's latest Hornet fighter pilots. A week later, I was strolling down the road a couple of hundred yards to join my new squadron, 77, the Grumpy Monkeys. The builders were still there, putting the finishing touches onto the building to accommodate the RAAF's latest aircraft, of which we had one. A 21-5 was the first Hornet airframe to wear the green colours of the squadron, and of course, we all wanted to play with it. Quite rightly, however, so did the engineers, since their academic training courses hadn't really prepared them for the real thing. As a result, J.K., our new squadron commander, arranged for all the pilots to head south to Melbourne and the government aircraft factory at Avalon Airfield. Only the first few F-18s were built in the USA, the rest were constructed at this Australian facility. Having been kept out of the engineer's hair for a few days, on the 16th of July 1987, I climbed into a 77 Squadron Hornet for the first time. For me, it was the start of a fantastic adventure, and I couldn't wait. But more of that next time. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show. You can find out all about that podcast at airlinepilotguy.com. And thanks to the generosity of Captain Jeff, Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast. So if you'd like to help us along, please pop over to Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice and leave us a nice review. We'd be very grateful. And thanks very much for listening.